To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Now, MPs have been debating Afghanistan and the UK's response to the crisis after they recalled from their summer holidays for an emergency session. Already this morning, we've heard from Boris Johnson, who said the UK had an enduring commitment to all the Afghan people, and he called on the UN to lead a humanitarian mission to the country. We will be supporting, uh, doing everything we can to support those who have helped uh, the UK mission in Afghanistan and uh, investing everything that we can to support the the wider area around and to do everything we can to avert a humanitarian crisis. But the Prime Minister called it a bleak moment. He said that we must face the reality of the change of regime in Afghanistan, but that it would be a mistake for any country to recognise any new regime in Kabul prematurely or bilaterally, in his words. Meanwhile, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, said it had been a disastrous week and what he called an unfolding tragedy. This government seems ill-prepared and unwilling, just as it has been too slow to provide sanctuary to Afghans who served alongside Britain. Too many reports of eligible Afghans facing bureaucratic hurdles and too many unfairly excluded. Kirstama said there had been a major miscalculation of the resilience of the Afghan forces and staggering complacency, he said, from our government about the Taliban. The situation, he said, required the Prime Minister to snap out of his complacency. Well, earlier, the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, announced a new plan to take in 20,000 Afghan refugees, with up to 5,000 coming here to the UK in the first year. And it's not just in London and Westminster that feelings are running high on all this. Northern Ireland is likely to be one of the places earmarked for the resettlement scheme. It's already taken in close to 2,000 Syrian refugees under previous schemes, proportionately more than any other part of the UK. The main Stormont parties have said that they support the government's plan to announce a bespoke scheme to help people at risk in Afghanistan, particularly women and girls. Meanwhile, the relatives of the many soldiers Northern Ireland uh, from Northern Ireland who died or who were badly injured in Afghanistan have been expressing their anger about what has happened. Well, joining us now is Claire Sugden, member of the Legislative Assembly in Northern Ireland for East Londonderry and an independent unionist. Claire, welcome to the programme and thank you for being with us today. Uh, first of all, for those who, who lost loved ones serving in Afghanistan or had relatives horribly injured this must have been a very hard week. And you are in touch with some of those families. Yes, um, I, I think those families are asking what was it for. 
Um, I am uh, aware of a, a young man who lost his life, Aaron McCormick, um, serving in Afghanistan. And at the time, his family were absolutely heartbroken um, and will carry that loss with them you know, for the rest of their lives. And watching the, the events unfold in Afghanistan and seeing the Taliban take back control, you know, that they're asking what was it for? What was that loss of life? What was that sacrifice? And, and, and I think it's it's very sad um, for, for people who are still living with that trauma and, you know, how we move forward. Yeah, indeed. How important then is it for Northern Ireland to step up in order to help refugees? I mean, obviously, many thousands of Afghans also killed uh, in the years of conflict. I think um, there is a responsibility on all countries across the world that have the capacity to to, to provide a, human, a human, humanitarian response. You know, and indeed Northern Ireland has you know have, has played its part um, in the past. We've seen that with Syrian refugees and, and the support that we've provided there. The Northern Ireland Executive um, has indicated their support and there is cross-party support across the Assembly to do that. I think it's about trying to ascertain what, what support is needed, whether that's housing, whether that's um, just providing that support when they come to Northern Ireland and, and integrating within our society. Um, I, I think we all have a responsibility to, to look to see what we can do to, to support those people seeking re- uh, refugee or asylum. How well has that worked, though, Claire, with with the Syrian refugees, and how welcome would Afghan uh, refugees be in Northern Ireland? I mean, obviously, very different cultures, uh, very different areas of of interest, religion. I mean, one can think of so many reasons why it might not work, but, but has it worked? Um, in most cases, yes, I, I would say so. And Northern Ireland is very much a welcoming country, and I think um, the, the 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 response um, of the Northern Ireland people to uh, Syrian refugees, and, and, and in this case, Afghan uh, refugees, will, will be very positive. Um, but there are challenges. You know, the, the asylum system in itself is not perfect. It's actually quite limited. Um, the support, the welfare that those individuals will get will, will be the minimum, which is which is disappointing because, you know, when they come to resettle here and hopefully, you know, able to continue their lives in a safe space along with their families, um, that you know that they they need to have the same access to to uh, services and opportunities uh, as others. So I, I think um, moving forward, um, we, we need to ensure that there is the positivity um, around uh, welcoming these people to Northern Ireland and doing what we can to support them. And if there are gaps in the system, if there are weaknesses, then we then we need to seek to address that. But that's the role of the Northern okay. Ireland executive of each government minister to see what needs to be done. Um, is there a number um, that Northern Ireland would be prepared to accept, do you think? Uh, and if so, uh, who's going to fund that? Um, you know, that, that you talk about as support needed for refugees. Where does the money come from? Well, certainly, you know, primarily this is a UK-wide response, you know, so any support that's being offered a lot, you know, will have to come, you know, via Westminster. And the Northern Ireland executive themselves will have to look to their own capacity and see see what's possible. Um, in the past, they have been very generous in terms of welcoming the number of uh, refugees to Northern Ireland. So I, I think this is something that has, I believe has to be taken uh, at Westminster, but certainly the Northern Ireland executive uh, need to be liaising to ensure that, you know, that we're doing what we can. 
Claire, let me move you on to something that, that is obviously of great concern, because if these refugees do come to Northern Ireland, they'll be coming into a community where there are significant tensions still, some perhaps exacerbated by what happened after Brexit in terms of where borders are, how borders work, all these kind of things. Now, this is a subject that we were talking about a lot only a few months ago. It's gone quite quiet. Some rather surprised at that, because we've been through the marching season when many hmm. people thought it might become a real issue, and it didn't. So... What's happened and why has it gone quiet? The, you know, thankfully, the summer has been quite quiet. Um, there have been a number of events right across Northern Ireland and events will continue until the end of the summer. And they, they've gone peacefully. I think the people taking the lead on those have ensured that it has been peaceful. It has been within the various regulations. And, you know, it, it's, you know, what was anticipated, the, the potential unrest, you know, didn't occur. So I think we're all thankful for that. Um, I think we're we're almost in this limbo kind of phase, certainly in relation to, to Brexit. You know, a lot of the, the issues that seemed very prevalent and apparent a number of months ago do seem to have sort of settled. But I think, you know, when, when we get into the autumn, when those grace periods start coming to an end, you know, those tensions will rise again. And, and I, I think it's not to say that those issues don't still exist. They do. You know, businesses are still writing to me saying that they're having difficulties getting certain supplies to Northern Ireland or, or indeed people are, are trying to purchase things from GB but uh, uh, businesses are refusing to send them there because of their bureaucracy. So I, I don't think this issue has gone away. I think it, it, you know, it's still ahead of us, not least because the, the, the solutions that have been found are not indefinite. They're a temporary measure until something more long-term can be worked out. So yeah. I, I think whenever the Assembly gets back from uh, recess now in September, it, it will be a focus, or it needs to be a focus. I appreciate there is a differing op- opinion, you know, not least because of the outcomes of Brexit. But, you know, in, in order to, to ensure that Northern Ireland people are not disadvantaged, indeed, you know, uh, GB suppliers wanting to, to, to use that, utilise that market in Northern Ireland are not disadvantaged. We need to, uh, to keep a focus on this and ensure that the UK our government um, are doing everything possible to ensure that it is seamless as promised. Well, is it any clearer what the way out, what the solution, if there is one, over the border issues actually is going to be come September? Well, indeed, you know, some of the solutions that they have put in place now, albeit temporary, if, if they are working, then, you know, th- those could be more longer-term solutions. But again, this is, this is a higher-level negotiation between uh, the United Kingdom and the European Union. Um, and Northern Ireland is a, is a critical part of that, not least because of the, the, they share a land border with the Republic of Ireland and uh, the, the, the exports and the, you know, the, the go-between um, both the UK and Ireland are actually really important to both markets. So I think it's in everyone's interest. And, and the you as well to, to try and find a way forward and perhaps some of these uh, uh, temporary solutions that they have uh, managed to negotiate um, will become more permanent. Yeah. Well, Claire, let me pick you up on something which I know is a sensitive issue for unionists because uh, we're getting reports a lot of trade has has boomed really between Dublin and, and Northern Ireland uh, during this period, perhaps for reasons of necessity. It's obviously a lot easier to trade within the, across that border really than it is across the, the Irish Sea. And that, I suppose, could change relationships potentially, change the outlook even for some unionists on the island of Ireland. What do you think? Um, I look at it in a very practical way, and if there are opportunities north-south of of the Northern Ireland border, then I'm as keen to realise those as the opportunities east-west. But I think the difficulty for unionists, and indeed beyond that, because I don't think this is a constitutional issue, I think this is a trade issue, Um, I I think people in Northern Ireland, not least because we are part of the same jurisdiction as other uh, regions of the United Kingdom, there shouldn't be any barriers to trade east-west. 
So if there are businesses in the UK who, or, or GB who, who want to trade in Northern Ireland, you know, that, that should be uh, open to them. And indeed for consumers in Northern Ireland who, who want to purchase things, you know, from, a, from across the water. So whilst, yes, there will be opportunities everywhere, we should do what we can to maximise those but we should be seeking to remove those barriers that didn't previously exist, not least because those um, those businesses and those markets had already been established. And to pull you know to pull the rug away from those, I don't think it's good for anyone. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Now, companies posted more than one million new job vacancies for the first time as loosening coronavirus rules led to an unprecedented scramble for staff. The headline jobless rate in the UK has fallen to 4.7% in the three months to June from 4.8% in May. The ONS figures also show evidence of inflation pressures from rising wages. Average earnings in the three months up to June surged a record 8.8% from a year earlier. Meanwhile, the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, wants to unlock £4 billion of investment into hydrogen production by 2030. A strategy being launched today is aiming to use similar incentives to the ones that were used to help boost offshore wind production to ramp up output. So the government believes that hydrogen could help provide as much as 35% of UK energy needs by 2050. Meanwhile, COVID tests for travel have become a rip-off, according to a former competition regulator. Andrew Tyree, the ex-lead chair of the Competition and Markets Authority, told the BBC the regulator has been too slow to react to complaints about testing providers. Holidaymakers have been subjected to tests that can cost hundreds of pounds, and last week the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, asked the CMA to investigate the high prices. Now, initially, the CMA said it would take up to a month to report back. And now it says it's reviewing the situation immediately. And now, news of a settlement scheme here in Britain for Afghan refugees has put migration firmly back into the spotlight. And in post-Brexit Britain, the issue of migration in general hasn't become any less contentious. The government is trying to strike a fine balance between appeasing voters who want to see greater curbs and also the need to fill all of those employment gaps we were just talking about. That need has been underscored by recent supply constraints, which some say have been made worse by a shortage of EU workers. Well, joining us now is Peter Walsh, who is a researcher at Oxford University's Migration Observatory. Peter, welcome. Uh, The group, of course, provides independent research on international migration and also public policy issues. Um, Peter, let's start with news around Afghanistan. Is there like 
likely to be a big upsurge now in migration from Afghanistan, people trying to get into the UK? I wouldn't expect the surge to be particularly big, frankly. Uh, The situation bears comparison with what happened in Syria in 2014. And we actually created a refugee resettlement scheme, a bespoke scheme for Syrians fleeing the conflict. And under that scheme, we welcomed about 20,000 refugees to the UK in about a six-year period. The big question is, what will the numbers be like in Afghanistan that need protection? We know already the UK government has offered safe passage to about 3,000 people who worked for the UK military while we were over there. The big question is how many more, and those not and those not having worked for the UK government will need safe asylum in the UK? And will there be a target for this scheme as there was for the Syrian resettlement scheme of 20,000? Those are the big questions. But the other route, the other way, is actually the normal asylum route. But for that, asylum seekers have to first reach the UK mainland. And that's not easy. It is expensive. There's no visa for coming to the UK for the purpose of claiming asylum. And so that's why we see Afghanistan citizens, they do not come by the normal asylum route in particularly large numbers, about a thousand a year in recent years, often less, 500. So that's a review of the numbers. Okay. Well, Peter, I mean, you you talk there about the Syrian uh, situation where we did put in place a, a specific process was that a success? I mean, is it the kind of thing that would work uh, if we tried to apply it to the Afghan situation? So the government absolutely touted that as a huge success. They created this target of 20,000. They met it almost within the five years that they planned. There was some disruption due to COVID. Uh, and I don't see why not um, a similar scheme could be implemented for Afghan refugees as well. The big question is, for how many? What will the need be? Um, if the numbers are similar to the Syrian scheme, I think that local authorities will find that they are able to welcome those numbers, but we'll have to see. If they're substantially greater, then there may be some additional logistical complexity that we'll have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, the internal displacement numbers within Syria, you know, are six to seven million. So, yeah, the numbers coming to the UK um, were very small in comparison to that sort of humanitarian disaster. Um, Let's uh, talk about, though, um, the UK's migration system as it stands now. How difficult is it for someone to move into the country you know, depending on uh, where they come from, post-Brexit, how open is the UK to migration? It's In general, it's a fairly restrictive system and it costs a lot of money, not only for the visas, which are amongst the most expensive in the world, but also applicants have to pay the immigration health charge. And that's usually about £3,000 up front. It's helpful to put it in some broader context, though. So before the end of free movement, we had extremely liberal migration policy for EU citizens and a very tough, restrictive policy for citizens from the rest of the world. Now it's much more restrictive for EU citizens, but it's actually more liberal for citizens from the rest of the world. Previously, they could only come in at graduate level jobs. 
but now the skill threshold has been lowered to middle-skilled jobs. So those are jobs requiring A-level or equivalent education. The big question is, well, what is this going to do to immigration numbers? We don't know. It will depend on that balance, the decrease in EU citizens coming against what I think is a likely increase in citizens from the rest of the world, because for them, actually, the new points-based system is more liberal than it was previously. And how then do we compare, Peter, to other similar countries, perhaps countries within the EU, in terms of our uh, of letting people in? Are, are we more overwhelmed? Are we more in, are we more desired by most immigrants? We are more desired. Um, our immigration over the last few years has totaled anywhere between five hundred thousand and seven hundred thousand per year. So we are one of the biggest immigrant-receiving countries in Europe. There are several reasons for that. The strength of the pound, English language, the UK's cultural power on the world stage, there's no doubt about it. The UK remains one of the hottest destinations for immigrants in Europe. But we do have fairly restrictive policies. I mean, a big chunk of those numbers are students. Most ordinary people wouldn't class students as migrants because they do return after a few years. But otherwise, our policies, they are are fairly restrictive. They're amongst the most restrictive across Europe. And then there's this separate issue of asylum. There, we do rather poorly compared with other countries like Germany, like Italy, that have many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands more asylum applications per year, and they do offer many thousands more grants of asylum. What about perhaps the most visible um, migration, immigration? We're going to get onto the terminology in a moment, but that is across the English Channel. And this is the sort of peak time, isn't it, in the summer when the weather is easier. The Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, under pressure to curb the numbers of people coming in, paying the French now to try to keep those numbers down. Who is it that is crossing the channel now? What direction are the numbers going in? And are they migrants, immigrants, asylum seekers, refugees? What's the right term? So almost all of them claim asylum on arrival, upwards of 95%. Uh, So the majority are asylum seekers. Whether they are decided to be genuine refugees depends on the UK government's decision-making. Most of them are granted asylum status over 55%. There's evidence that that percentage has gone up in recent years. Where are they from? They're from Iran. They're from Iraq. They're from Afghanistan. They're from the Sudan. These are places that are wracked by ethnic, political conflict. Most of these people, they do claim asylum. And from those countries in particular, the actual success rates for those asylum applications are well above 55%. But I mean, just to put the numbers in a broader frame, in 2018, there were 300 people detected crossing in small boats. This year, it's in excess of 10,000. So it's a really big challenge. And the numbers are increasing. The UK government's been throwing millions of pounds the French way for over a decade now. And the problem is still getting worse. So there's still a lot of work to do. But it is a very big problem to try to solve. There's a lot of coastline French coastline that has to be policed to really come down on this. Peter, briefly, if you would, what about the plans for British nationals overseas coming in Hong Kong? Uh, There seems to be a new visa available. Is there a big take-up of that? 
there has been some substantial take-up. We have data for the first quarter of this year, 35,000 applicants. That's just the first quarter. The government estimates, very difficult to forecast, but that we might see between two and 300,000 in the first five years of the policy. Just by contrast, in the first quarter this year, EU citizens, just 5,000 applications for visas. So there has been some excellent take of this Vienna visa, and there seems to be quite a lot of interest. Let's see how those numbers continue in the rest of this year. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.